we're uh, lucky uh, to be able to be here and we do little more than stand on the shoulders of those who have gone uh, before us and there are lots of uh, players and participants uh, in this audience who are as thoroughly familiar as are the speakers with the forces, factors and phenomena uh, that drive so much in terms of action and reaction and interaction and also have ramifications and implications for America's interest, uh, America's policies and those of America's uh, friends, uh, allies, and strategic partners, as well as those of America's adversaries. So we have uh, half a dozen speakers who come at these issues from uh, their own perspectives. Uh, we've asked all of them to keep their remarks to under 10 minutes, with the exception of Colonel DeRoche, who's given three and a half minutes. <laughs> and at the end, uh, we'll have our questions. And the best questions are those that uh, do not start with W, vexing as they may be. Who needs to do this? What needs to be done? Why does it need to be done? Where will we be if we do this? Or where will we be if we don't do this? And sometimes even whether. Uh, but the most uh, problematic ones are the how questions because the answers to a uh, how question cannot be yes or no. And they do have implications, oftentimes severe ones. There are no uh, 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 risk-free answers to the how questions. So uh, those who are writing your questions on the three by five cards, please keep that in mind. Uh, sometimes a W one uh, is all right in terms of asking the speakers, uh, what do you uh, recommend that the U.S. Uh, in particular uh, do or not do, uh, given the realities that we face? And uh, what would be the consequence if uh, your recommendations uh, are not taken into consideration? Uh, so I'll introduce the speakers in uh, sequence uh, there, and I first will be, I'll introduce them all together right now, and then they'll speak in the sequence from your uh, right uh, to left. Uh, first speaker will be a former Iraqi ambassador to the United Nations and to the United States, uh, Samir Sumidai. From 2004 to 2006, he was uh, Iraq's ambassador to the permanent mission of Iraq uh, to the United Nations. From 2006 to 2011, he was Iraq's ambassador to the United States. And before uh, these positions, he was Iraq's minister of interior. Now put yourself empathetically in the challenges that he had in terms of trying to rebuild the country's national police force after the United States uh, representatives had done uh, what they did to disband the military and effectively the cream of the crop of the police force. Uh, next uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Imad Harb. Uh, as a major director of research and policy studies at the Abu Dhabi-based Emirates Center for Strategic Studies and Research. And we're uh, lucky as can be uh, that he's chosen to be with us. He is the National Council's first of a distinguished ITA who is no stranger to this uh, audience either. Uh, Tom had three years as the Director of Research at the Middle East uh, Policy Council, 
Uh, we share the same floor and the same part of six years in Abu Dhabi uh, researching his landmark book dealing with the three uh, UAE islands that uh, were taken on December the 1st, uh, 1971, uh, Greater and Lesser Tanab and Abu Musa in Iran's international uh, relations. Uh, Colonel David DeRoche uh, is an alumnus of the National Council's Malone Faculty Fellows uh, in Arab and Islamic Studies program in Syria. Uh, he's uh, been a graduate of the University of London, studied under Professor Lawrence Friedman. He's the former director of Arabian Peninsula and Gulf Affairs for the Office of the uh, Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategic Studies at the Department of Defense. And then following is Matthew Reynolds, he's a Rice, and he is the head of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for North America and with responsibility for some Palestinian citizens of Israel. And last but not least, we have Joshua Yaffe, that the acorn, uh, acorn does not fall far from the tree. And so it's usually put in the context of a father and son and some and most productive of analysts and writers and speakers in terms of Iraq. These are our speakers. Thank you very much, um, Dr. Anthony. Um, I'll try to keep to 10 minutes. The situation uh, in Iraq and the Middle East is so complex that really you cannot, do, you cannot say much in 10 minutes. But I'll try to distill as much as I can uh, into uh, this short time. Uh, one thing I have learned over the years is that actions and policies which appear to be attractive at the time, if not through, thought through, can have devastating long-term consequences. We are living now through the long-term devastating consequences of policies and actions that took place decades ago. I'll try to elaborate on this. Iraq, after the much maligned Sykes-Picot treatment and the establishment of the state of Iraq by the British, was doing reasonably well. I grew up during the monarchy when life in Baghdad was very um, pleasant. People were progressing. They had hope. Baghdad itself was peaceful. The country generally was peaceful. Education was being built up. It was good. Uh, I was a product of a high school, public school in Baghdad. Got a scholarship uh, because I achieved good marks, was sent at the government expense to the UK to study, and found myself, in terms of my academic uh, level, very comfortable with American uh, with, with the British students. What I'm trying to say is that the country was doing very well. And it had prospects. Institutions were being built. Uh, infrastructure was being built. The oil uh, revenue was being 
invested wisely, there was hardly any corruption. Then there was the military coup, which overthrew that order and started Iraq on the way downwards. That was a huge step backwards for Iraq, which we're still paying for until now. But that military coup produced uh, uh, the regime of the Ba'athists in uh, 1963 and 1968 later, and then the absolute dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, who took Iraq into war after war and completely destroyed Iraq. The only institutions that were left standing at the end were the security institutions. The rest of Iraq was uh, destroyed. And what Saddam and the wars did not destroy, the sanctions did. The sanctions actually did not hurt the regime. They hurt the Iraqi people. They destroyed even the social fabric in Iraq and, uh, and, and made uh, corruption uh, uh, established and deep-rooted. Now, enter the Americans. We don't want to go over the history of how and why and, and so on. But the Americans entered, I think, without much idea of what they were uh, walking into. And they took some very bad decisions at the beginning. At the beginning, everybody, uh, uh, everybody assumed that uh, you know, the, the Americans have come. OK, Saddam Hussein was removed. Uh, Practically everyone in Iraq was happy that Saddam was removed. And they were looking to see which way the Americans were going to go. They disbanded the military. That was a bad decision. Now everybody agrees. But they also disbanded the police, not only the elite of the police, the police. Imagine in New York or Chicago or Washington, D.C. for prolonged periods without any police. I don't want to talk about Ferguson today, but I want to talk about what, what can happen in a society which is all already traumatized, already brutalized, already living with violence, and simply having no law and order implements. That led to the looting and the chaos that took place, which you saw on your, uh, on your television screens. And then from then on, trying to erect a political, a new political order that can take the country out of this situation into some orderly uh, um, state. Now, our American new lords wanted to create us in their image, wanted to have a democracy with decentralized government and all the democratic institutions ticking like, a, uh, like the clockwork. But they had this idea of Iraq as being a community split into Sunnis, Shi'is, Kurds. And, they, and these communities had to be represented separately. As a result, they instituted, instituted a political system which deepened these divisions, which made even people like me, who are 
largely unaware or unconscious or not, who couldn't care about their individual sectarian affiliation, to be much more conscious of it, and therefore to act in accordance with that consciousness. At the same time, we had sectarian Islamist parties, mostly trained and, and funded outside the country, who entered the, 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 this political process. And it was in their interest to, to play politics in this way. So that's the collusion of policies that, uh, that resulted from vested interests, on the one hand, by, by Islamists, local Islamists, and an American perception, which in my opinion was, was misguided. As a result, we had the successive governments that took place with the idea that winner takes all. If the Shia are the majority, well, they are, they are going to make sure that they get all the benefits, and, uh, and, and that's it, and the others can go and Walk off, uh, walk off into the distance. This, of course, didn't, didn't work and created the conditions that led to the current situation. Iraq is not in a vacuum. Iraq lives in a, in a neighborhood which is on fire. Historically, in the, in, the, in the longer scale, we have a whole region which is just beginning to wake up out of the Middle Ages culture, the mentality, even the religion has, is not reformed. And to be sprung into the, in, into the 21st century and forced, be forced to compete in, on the world stage, it, it is not equipped. So they need to have this transition, they need to have this, this change in order so that they can catch up. And again, uh, the, we, we, when we witnessed the Arab Spring, we found that it faltered. It faltered because of a whole number of reasons, some internal and some external. All of this has impacted, uh, or, or one, one thing happening in one country impacted what's happening in another. What happened in Egypt, for example, had profound uh, impact on what happened in Syria, and, and so on. Syria has impacted Iraq uh, considerably. And I, again, I don't want to go into the uh, missteps that took place in the Syrian situation. As a result, now we have a monster in the form of the Islamic State, which is wreaking havoc in Iraq, and nobody seems to know what to do with it. I'm sure some of, the, uh, some of my distinguished colleagues and speakers will be tackling those uh, th those uh, necessary policies uh, in terms of what to do with the current situation. But I really wanted to put the, uh, to, to, to paint a picture of the context in which this current uh, catastrophe is taking place and to project forward unless we deal with the fundamental issues, we cannot get out of this situation. We have three levels. One is the humanitarian level. We have families who are 
uh, evicted from their homes, who are threatened, who have no water, no food, they have to be dealt with. Refugees have to be dealt with urgently, today, this week, not in three months' time. Then we have to get a political order that is sustainable and can combat terrorism and can reconstitute the country in any stable form. It doesn't have to be exactly as how it cannot be exactly how it was before the 1950s. That is impossible. That's gone. The situation has changed. But we've got to constitute it in a way that is sustainable. Lastly, we have to, in the long term, create an alliance, not only a regional, local alliance, but international alliance to combat the ideology of terrorism. Much of the terrorism that is active in the region is anchored, is based on a religious interpretation of Islam that's not acceptable. It's very closely linked specifically to the Wahhabi sect, which is actively uh, promoted and funded and is creating problems and and, and if you like producing on a mass scale uh, uh, many uh, monsters who grow up into full-fledged bloodthirsty uh, uh, terrorists. So these three levels, the humanitarian short term, the political middle term, and the ideological long term have to be welded together to create a strategy, an overarching strategy that has to be, should be embraced by the United States, by its allies, by the local populations, and all these forces have to come together uh, to, to, uh, to, to create a long-term term solution. I must also mention that there are other festering issues that aggravate the situation, such as the Palestinian-Israeli issue. Now, within, without a resolution of that problem, there's going to be always a recruiting uh, possibility for terrorists, and there's going to be a, a continued source of, uh, of instability. So uh, I, I don't know whether I've uh, taken more than my share of time, but thank you very much. I'll, I'll stop there and leave the rest to the questions and answers. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I uh, uh, basically was given the, uh, the uh, opportunity to speak a little bit about Syria and Lebanon as they influence the, uh, what might be called, uh, what, what we might call uh, very, very, uh, in a very minimal kind of way, disaster situation in the Middle East, unfortunately. Uh, uh, there is an arc of instability extending all the way from Iraq to Lebanon, uh, another one extending from uh, Yemen to Libya, and uh, uh, hopefully these things will be um, somehow as peacefully as possible dealt with soon. 
Um, but uh, uh, in Lebanon, uh, the situation is not quite that good, unfortunately. Two very important developments are um, uh, basically putting the uh, country's future and development uh, on the line. Uh, one of them is basically the, uh, the issue of uh, the uh, institutional discontinuity that is threatening the future of the country. Uh, first of all, there is no president. There have not been a, a president elected since uh, the end of uh, uh, the tenure of the former president, Michel Soleiman uh, May. And um, uh, the present uh, House of Deputies, uh, Chamber of Deputies, the Parliament, is uh, the, extent, the term of which is about to uh, expire in November uh, of this year. And uh, uh, so these, these two institutional discontinuities are really very, very serious. Um, no president and possibly no parliament means two, uh, two institutions of the Lebanese Republic are not working, so only, uh, there will only be a council of minister that, uh, ministers that would be basically working uh, just on a, in, a, in a, a capacity of a caretaker government, so to speak, because um, there is no, um, I mean, parliament cannot legislate if it's not there. The president can't sign decrees if he is not there. So uh, we have, we have uh, a very, very big um, uh, institutional problem. Um, as far as the U.S. is concerned, uh, as far as the president, uh, the election for a president, I think the U.S. has and will probably continue to be working on electing some sort of a consensus uh, candidate. Uh, obviously, there is a um, uh, there is General Aoun, who is the uh, the leader of the largest Christian uh, bloc within Parliament, uh, who is who himself is a candidate for the for the position, but uh, he is uh, very much out of the question. Nobody is going to accept him. Uh, another candidate is uh, the leader of the Lebanese Forces Party, which is the former former warlord Samir Jaja. Uh, he is also not very uh, uh, acceptable to a whole bunch of other people. So obviously, there has to be some sort of a consensus candidate uh, who falls within. Uh, these two extremes, uh, obviously, a um, uh, uh, some somebody who is uh, truly centrist, who is accepted by uh, both uh, uh, camps uh, of uh, in the country. Uh, only problem is uh, uh, the issue of the presidency and the issue of the different um, um, political factions is not only a domestic issue, it's also a regional issue. There is a lot of regional influence in the country, and uh, the country is not basically speaking for itself only. Uh, there are other people who are speaking for it and have their own influences within its institutions and its political parties. Uh, as far as the parliament is concerned, uh, today, as a matter of fact, the electoral committees were supposed to have been called into action to prepare for the elections that would uh, be taking place, supposedly taking place in November of this year, three months hence. Uh, and um, uh, the, the present parliament anyway has, uh, is, is in an extended session at any rate. Uh, they extended it back in June of 2013 for 17 months. Uh, so they can uh, really deal with certain issues and develop, I mean, uh, 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 at the time, they, they didn't have a government, so they also wanted, they also had a problem with uh, uh, forming the government. So um, uh, the issue is very, very much <coughs> political in, in, this, uh, in this situation here. 
the Maronites want the presidency to be established. In other words, uh, no Maronite is really going to let the parliament, uh, well, I, I, should, I should put it this way, a Maronite president is, sits across the table from a Shiite speaker of parliament. In other words, if you don't give us our president, we're not going to give you a parliament. In other words, no extension for the parliament, uh, for the current parliament. In other words, there is no institution, uh, either institution in the executive branch or the legislative branch. So uh, the, uh, this is why the situation is rather dire. So there has to be work uh, towards uh, that end. Um, the other problem, uh, other than the institutional uh, incontinuity, uh, discontinuity, is the issue of the jihadists in the country. Unfortunately, uh, Lebanon that has never been a place for jihadists uh, has, is becoming uh, not necessarily a place for jihadists, but people are listening in the uh, cities and the poor areas of the cities to jihadi talk. And uh, obviously, uh, specifically, uh, outside of the uh, Shiite camp, which is basically controlled by, uh, by uh, Hezbollah and uh, the Amal movement, uh, the, the, uh, the, Krish the, uh, the Sunni cities are also beginning to have some sort of a um, uh, burgeoning, so if you will, of uh, certain jihadi tendencies, jihadi uh, thought, and uh, they're recruiting certain uh, people, uh, being helped in that matter by funding from uh, different, uh, different entities uh, within and outside of the country and being also helped by the presence of uh, and the reality of the presence of uh, Palestinian uh, refugee camps in the country where uh, Palestinian jihadists are also working. Uh, so uh, these, are, these, these issues are uh, really quite, quite important. And uh, the, uh, it, uh, basically at the, at the beginning of the month, uh, this uh, issue of the jihadists basically showed up on the eastern shore of the country and uh, in the town of Arsal, and uh, uh, they took it over, they took the, the, the town and the police contingent uh, hostage until the army interfered, obviously, and uh, uh, liberated the town. But now uh, they have hostages also. They, they ran away, but they also took Lebanese uh, uh, police and soldiers hostage with them to uh, Syrian camps. Uh, this, uh, in, in this issue, obviously, the United States is called upon. Uh, to help the Lebanese army, obviously. There have always been uh, problems with helping the Lebanese army. The United States has always held back on helping, uh, specifically because it didn't know where Hezbollah is going with the country. Uh, well, they didn't know then, but now they know uh, that Hezbollah is almost controlling the country. And if they didn't help the army then, uh, uh, they should help it now, at least because there are jihadists trying to uh, infiltrate the place, infiltrate the country. So the United States is called upon to help in this uh, in this manner. The United States is also called upon to help uh, in uh, trying to uh, re-implement uh, United Nations uh, uh, Security Council Resolution 1701 that ended the uh, 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah. 
Uh, that 1701 basically stipulated that uh, UNIFIL, which is United Nations Interim Forces in Lebanon, United Nations Forces would be spread all over the, 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 uh, the perimeters of Lebanon, basically on the borders, to, uh, to basically monitor the security situation. Maybe it's time. Uh, and that, that uh, resolution was only implemented in the south, and uh, UNIFIL forces are acting in the south. Uh, there was probably about anywhere between 12 and 13,000 soldiers there. Uh, but 1701 should extend to other places in the United Nations. The United States can help with that. The only problem with it is where will additional troops come from? And uh, this is the biggest, uh, probably the biggest issue. Uh, another big issue is the issue of uh, whether Hezbollah and uh, the Syrian government would accept uh, deploying United Nations uh, troops uh, along the borders between Lebanon and Syria. I mean, Lebanon is experiencing the repercussions of that war. Uh, finally, uh, they have arrived, uh, and uh, Syria was never going to be only Syria. The Syrian war was not only going to be a Syrian war. It was uh, sooner or later going to be everybody else's war, and Lebanon uh, has basically uh, now actively begun into it, uh, came into it, uh, but at the same time, you know, Hezbollah has been in Syria for about two years now and has, has been fighting there. And that was uh, a big, uh, uh, that, that is uh, becoming a very, very big political uh, hot issue in Lebanon. Uh, as far as Syria is concerned, unfortunately, three and a half years of war, uh, probably close to about 200,000 killed, 8 million uh, IDPs and uh, refugees outside of the country. Um, uh, the place has become uh, uh, an attracting, uh, well, has become an attractive point for jihadists everywhere. Unfortunately, the moderate, the moderate uh, opposition uh, is not quite uh, strong. It's not quite active. Uh, it really does not control a whole lot of the country. Uh, the country is being controlled. The cities are controlled by the regime. The countryside is controlled by uh, mostly jihadists uh, between. Uh, the Islamic State, uh, formerly Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, uh, and the Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, the problem with the Syrian situation is uh, not only that it is an active war, civil war, in which uh, tens of people die every day and uh, hundreds more are wounded or made homeless. The problem is also that it is um, uh, it's creating uh, new conditions for yet more sectarian problems in the in the area, and uh, uh, the uh, the issue within Syria itself, there are certain communities now that have not claimed to have uh, participated in the war and don't claim to be against or with the regime, and now they're being forced to make a decision, to make a, a stand. Uh, will you become, will, will you be with us or will you not be with us? And uh, specifically, I'm talking about the southeast of the country, uh, uh, the Druze community uh, uh, down there that is being forced by Jabhat al-Nusra forces to either declare that you are Muslims and against the regime or something else will be done with you. Uh, so uh, it's not only that ISIS is doing the same thing in Iraq, uh, but uh, also Jabhat al-Nusra is doing it in Syria. Um, as for the U.S., uh, the U.S. has always called and uh, continues to call for the departure of uh, Bashar al-Assad. I really don't know how that is going to happen. 
so long as Iran and Hezbollah and Russia are uh, behind Bashar al-Assad, this is a very, very tall order to uh, accomplish. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the Geneva process that was begun in the summer of last year uh, was, um, well actually no, the summer of the year before I think, um, was not really followed by a, by a Geneva II. It was only a Geneva I and the Geneva II basically collapsed. The Geneva I had negotiated some sort of a deal where he might leave peacefully, <coughs> but uh, apparently he dug his heels in and uh, he is not leaving. Um, the United States will probably, uh, I, don't, I really don't know what the United States can do so far. Uh, I, I think that at least two years of time have been lost, and uh, I don't know what the United States can do anymore. Uh, I, uh, there might be, there just might be, uh, a situation where uh, the, the W word, word comes, uh, this is the word you don't want to hear, um, that uh, if the United States uh, airplanes are bombing ISIS in northern Iraq, maybe if they veer a little bit to the left, and Bob ISIS somewhere in Raqqa or somewhere in Syria. Maybe, maybe they change the situation there. Uh, I really don't know how much they can do. Uh, but uh, I'd, um, uh, I'd leave the rest of uh, whatever is going on in Lebanon and Syria to a question and answer period. I look forward to them. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I'm going to change the order of my remarks a little because uh, two of the uh, co-panelists have covered some of the material. And so I, I think I'll go straight to Iran and um, refer you back to the <coughs> speech that President Obama made uh, to the um, West Point in May uh, where he um, spoke about this as if it were and is um, a question of upholding the international order and upholding international law and international institutions and something that requires multilateral action uh, to deal with, although uh, he said we would leave the uh, option of force on the table. Um, he did not speak about the geopolitical challenge that Iran presents to its neighbors and didn't speak about Iran's neighbors much at all in that context. But uh, because he reached out to Iran and because Iran has a new president, we therefore have a process of diplomacy and there was uh, a joint plan of action reached with Iran on its nuclear program in November. And uh, although they did not reach a conclusion by the uh, July deadline. They did think enough progress was made to continue and to uh, give it a four-month extension. Um, just to give you an idea of what uh, has been agreed upon, Iran has, <coughs> has limited its enrichment of uranium um, hexafluoride to under 5%, uranium-235, which is sufficient to fuel a reactor but not sufficient to produce a weapon. <coughs> it had been enriching to the level of 20% and it has diluted all of that or converted all of that to fuel rods for its reactors. And um, 
It has agreed to design changes at a light water reactor that might have been able to produce plutonium as a second route to a weapon, although they never built a reprocessing facility for the light water reactor, and that would be necessary. And they're in discussions about different uses for the facilities at Fordo, which were discovered two or three years ago. And they've limited themselves to the 10,000 functioning centrifuges that are already functioning and are not turning on the eight or 9,000 other centrifuges that they have uh, already in their inventory. And we have agreed to some limits on the sanctions, although they're very modest limits. We're allowing them to uh, export, I believe, a million barrels of oil per day and uh, <coughs> earn the revenue from that and release some funds for them, but we haven't lifted the major sanctions on their oil industry and certainly not on their central bank. So this may be the best way to get an agreement on Iran's nuclear program. And even um, the Gulf Arab <coughs> government individuals that I've spoken to <coughs> hope so. But <coughs> those Gulf Arabs are a little concerned about the fact that we started these negotiations through Oman in secret and did not include them. And they do think they ought to be included so that the permanent five members of the Security Council plus one, namely Germany, really ought to include some of those GCC states. <coughs> if there is an agreement, uh, well, I, I think there's quite a large gap between the parties. And we are talking about permitting the operation of maybe 4,000 centrifuges, the first generation centrifuges, <coughs> and they are talking about 20,000. We're talking about three or three or, they're talking about a, a, a period of time that might last three or seven years and then they would be permitted to do whatever they wish. We're talking about a period of time more like 20 years. So I, I think there's, and I, I think there's quite a large gap and I'm not sure they'll reach an agreement uh, um, at the end of this four month period of time. And there are other questions that have to be resolved too because the International Atomic Energy Agency still has unresolved questions about Pre possible previous military research. Uh, and so Iran is being asked to answer questions about uh, uh, evidence that it may have engaged in testing explosives and uh, detonators and uh, doing designs, warhead designs and uh, the like. And so far they're really not satisfying the IAEA, although its, uh, its head said two or three days ago he expected some results soon. Um, I would say that although the Gulf Arabs would like to see some successful outcome here, they're, they're, they're pretty concerned about it, and they think that we're far enough away uh, to be more comfortable and more flexible than they would like to be. Uh, they consider themselves to be on the front line. And um, I think if an agreement is reached whereby Iran is permitted to continue enriching uranium to any level, any level at all, then you would probably find Saudi Arabia 
and some others uh, embark on that themselves. Uh, the, when the UAE signed um, agreements to build nuclear power in, in the UAE, they agreed to not enrich. And as a matter of fact, if you read the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which, of, of which Iran is a signatory, and which does permit Iran and others to have a civilian nuclear program, it doesn't explicitly say that enrichment is um, uh, an inviolable element of a civilian nuclear program. Iran doesn't want to rely upon foreign sources of enriched uranium, but uh, Israel and the Gulf Arabs would like to see zero enrichment, and if that's not, if that's not the agreement, I think you'll see them take some kind of compensating action. But more than that, uh, they are concerned that the United States is interested enough in this agreement that it may acquiesce in um, Iran's ambitions through the region and particularly in the Arab world. So uh, they view uh, some of the challenges that they deal with in the, in the region as the, as the result of American policies, uh, as the ambassador was saying not long ago. Uh, they asked us, warned us not to invade Iraq in 2003. They told us we wouldn't be able to handle the, the unforeseen consequences of that. Um, they um, are very, very uneasy that we haven't intervened in a more uh, robust way in Syria. Um, and uh, of course they're disappointed deeply in uh, our failures, our repeated failures to bring about an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. So they're concerned that we will somehow, for the sake of a nuclear agreement, acquiesce in the expansion of Iranian influence in the region. And you see Iranian influence, of course, in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and uh, to a certain extent, although I think it's exaggerated in, in the Palestinian region. Um, now, let me go to um, the question of Iranian influence in the region. Uh, in just a few minutes. As I said, Obama did talk about this Iranian nuclear challenge in his speech at West Point, but he, he didn't identify it as the major threat facing the United States or the region. He identified uh, loosely connected networks of terrorists with local agendas as the number one threat to the United States and uh, announced a new counterterrorism policy that would um, help train uh, security partners so that we have uh, cooperative multilateral efforts in dealing with this in dealing with this challenge. And not long after that, um, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant swept down the Tigris River Valley and took Mosul, and the Iraqi army retreated which brought into question the strategy, the tactic of relying upon local security partners to deal with this threat. Uh, it even brings into question whether or not we can rely on the Afghan security partners that we've trained after we leave Afghanistan. Um, 
Obama said that Syria would be a major focus of his new counterterrorism policy, and I don't want to repeat everything that Imad said. But basically, uh, although the U.S. has supported some collective action, some diplomacy, some sanctions, some training of some partners, and it, it really hasn't done what some of uh, the Gulf Arab neighbors and Jordan and uh, even uh, Lebanese Christians would, would have liked to see us do, which would be no-fly zones, safe, safe uh, zones, uh, humanitarian corridors, maybe targeted airstrikes, particularly after uh, Syria's use of chemical weapons in the suburbs of Damascus last year. And um, secondly, the, because the regime is an Alawite regime, an offshoot of Shiism, and because it's supported by Iran, has been supported by Iran for a long time, and because uh, the, opposition, the opposition is, is largely Sunni, and the casualties being taken by the Sunni rebels, uh, by the, the Syrian rebels are, are, are largely Sunni. That arouses the concern of Gulf Arab states and um, enhances their criticism of American policy. And we've struggled with how to deal with this and who we might give arms to, who could be vetted sufficiently with the help of, let's say, Saudi intelligence services to receive our weapons and um, without keeping us awake at night about uh, how the, who, who might get their hands on those weapons later on, but we haven't, we haven't resolved that. We haven't resolved that. In fact, American weapons were captured by Islamic State when Iraqi military retreated. Am I running out of time? Okay. So, so that gives us the question of Iraq, and I'll just say one or two words here. Uh, terrible problem. Uh, we are doing something about it with the airstrikes, but clearly we can't do it alone. Iran has had a lot of influence with the Iraqi government. Uh, the Iraqi government hasn't reached out sufficiently to the rest of the population to give it a stake. And so uh, Islamic State has found supporters on the ground in the Sunni community, and something has to be done about that. Uh, a more inclusive Iraqi government um, and help from Sunni Arab neighbors to drain Sunni Arab support away from the Islamic State. There seems to be a temporary convergence of interest with Iran on that, but I think we have to remember who our longtime friends and partners have been and, and their concern about overt uh, cooperation with Iran, which probably doesn't wish them well in the long run and might even want to see the Islamic State uh, <clears throat> challenge Saudi Arabia. Uh, along its borders or inside, the, in, inside Saudi Arabia. And I'll take questions on that, as everybody will, since I've run out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for the opportunity to participate in an important study with such august policy experts. and. Uh, apropos of nothing, since it is the month of August, and these guys are August, I should note that yesterday was the 2,000th anniversary of the death of Augustus Caesar. Um, that's trivia for you. Let me start by saying my remarks do not reflect the views of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, the United States government. My remarks today will focus on the military aspects of the situation in Iraq and the U.S. response, so I want to thank Dr. Matera for teeing that up for me. I will start by looking at the nature of the IS threat, 
IS, ISIS, Daesh, whatever you want to call it. Then the dilemma facing the United States, then the response taken by the United States, and I'll finally I'll discuss possible end games for the situation, um, and I'll answer any questions uh, with the rest of the group. First, the nature of the IS threat. Much has been written about the speed with which ISIS advanced through the Sunni regions of Iraq. I would like to make two points here. The first is that IS should not be made out to be more than it is. It is not Napoleon sweeping through Central and Eastern Europe. What IS has succeeded in doing is ousting a corrupt and ineffective Shia-dominated security and defense force from a region mostly inhabited by Sunnis who were opposed to the Maliki regime in general and corrupt Shia-dominated security forces in particular. The IS advance is not notable so much for the speed in which the movement spread, but rather the speed with which the Shi'i-led and manned security forces collapsed. The historical metaphor here is the collapse of Great Britain's forces in Burma and the armed forces of the Netherlands in Indonesia in 1942. The Japanese military that they faced were definitely adept in battle, but a key and often unrecognized factor was the role played by an almost entirely hostile uh, native Asian population in both Indonesia and Burma. The second advantage enjoyed by IS in its role as a defiantly muscular opposition to a governmental structure and system of political dynamics that have passed their shelf expiration date. The IS has stood up to al-Assad and al-Maliki and has prospered doing so. IS has donned the robes and masks of the champion of the oppressed in the face of a world order that is increasingly war-weary and preoccupied with other issues and challenges. To a certain set of people in both the East and the West, IS is quite simply sexy. Now the challenge faced by the United States. The problem in Iraq is very much a consequence of how the U.S. chose to de-escalate the violence in the Sunni portions of Iraq during the famed Sunni awakening. It was foreseeable, and it was argued at the time, that paying non-governmental Sunni militias to, in effect, not oppose the Iraqi government would inevitably produce a situation that would work against the interests of peace in Iraq. Sooner or later, the Sunnis would either have to integrate themselves into the poorly paid, poorly led, Shia-dominated Iraqi security institutions, or they would choose to stand apart. And it seems as though the Sunnis have chosen the latter option, to stand apart. The United States faces an acute dilemma here. On the one hand, the United States cannot be so active in supporting the Iraqi government that it stifles the impetus for reform in Iraq. If the Baghdad regime, regardless of who leads it, perceives it has unconditional or the near unconditional support of the U.S., then why would it reform? On the other hand, if the U.S. fails to support the Iraqi regime in a meaningful way, Iran will embed itself even deeper into the Iraqi government, while at the same time the Kurds will cement their increasingly de facto independence and bulk up their control over the oil center of Kirkuk. And it, shouldn't, it hasn't been remarked upon enough that... Um, the Kurds are focused on fighting the war, but they're also focused on winning the peace. And when ISIS took Mosul, uh, the Kurds uh, took Kirkuk. <laughs> uh, trap, not, not quite as nastily, but they took it, and they have it. Trapped on the horns of this dilemma, the U.S. decision to support Kurdish forces, primarily Kurdish forces, with airstrikes seems to be efficacious. It enables U.S. air power to work at blunting the IS advance, while at the same time depriving the Iraqi regime's elites of an American imprimatur on their way of doing business for the past few years. 
At the same time, the U.S. is providing some limited military assistance, mostly small arms and ammunition, to Kurdish military forces. Again, the U.S. needs to finally balance competing goals, and unfortunately, the United States has not proven itself particularly adept at finally balancing goals and issues of security, particularly in this country. Not only are the Kurds at odds with the Iraqi government, but they're also at odds with each other. In the not-too-distant past, the Barzani and Talibani factions of the Iraqi Kurdish movement were at war at each, with each other. Alliances of convenience were struck bet with, between one Kurdish group and Saddam Hussein against another Kurdish group just within the last 20 years or so. Add to the mix the potent Turkish and Syrian Kurdish forces who also have their own separate aims, and you get a situation where the United States can't really provide heavy weaponry to the Kurds without upsetting a rather tenuous balancing act. The PDK, PUK, PKK, and YPG those are the Kurdish movements, various flavors, form a volatile alphabet soup, which is the best force to win the war against the IS, at least in those regions where they occupy. Unfortunately, the various Kurdish groups are concerned with winning the peace as well as with winning the war, and can be expected to divert military assets to the big prize of Kirkuk, even while combat rages. So we can't really write a blank check for the Kurds, because we don't know where it's going to go. So what is the U.S. military doing, or what is the U.S. doing militarily? Press reports indicate that carrier-based aviation and more recently land-based bombers are flying from the northern Gulf to Iraq, dropping bombs and then returning. And uh, I haven't seen it in the press where the land-based bombers are going from, but my guess is it's not a short distance, it's a rather long distance. Uh, the Navy is happy in this time of contracting defense budgets to prove the continued relevancy of carrier aviation, but this way of doing business is subject to the law of diminishing returns. That's uh, Mr. O'Malley telling me to shut up. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't had a phone. I haven't had a call on that phone in five days. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> while it's politically expedient. Uh, I'm sorry. While politically expedient, since it avoids having boots on the ground, it subjects aircraft to extreme risk and is reliant upon munitions such as 500-pound bombs, which may not be effective against a rapidly dispersing threat such as IS armed vehicles. IS is no longer laying mortar batteries and artillery batteries out in the open as if they were operating on a pool table. They are now hiding targets or hugging civilian targets to minimize the threat from bombing, particularly from high-altitude bombing. Robert Scales' editorial in last Thursday's Washington Post, which draws on his book Firepower and Limited War, which is a great book, uh, is the best discussion of this issue. The best way to neutralize the IS threat, which is mostly armored vehicles, mortars, and artillery pieces, would be with a ground-based A-10 capability. The A-10 has a long loiter time. It's very resilient against ground fire, which is the primary threat that IS will have. Uh, it can fly slowly enough to identify targets and minimize the risk of civilian damage. Unfortunately, this optimal military solution, the A-10, runs against two political imperatives. The first is the Obama administration seems to be adamant against having large numbers of forces on the ground, and the A-10 can't operate from such long distances. The second is that the U.S. Air Force is entering the end game of a generational struggle to eliminate its only dedicated ground support aircraft and won't allow a tactical emergency to take the noose from around the A-10's neck. They want to get rid of the A-10 they've wanted to for the start and we won't see it. So the, the United States finds itself in the somewhat odd military position of supporting an ineffective and largely illegitimate Iraqi government against an enemy which that should not be completely defeated because the impetus for Iraqi government reform will recede from Baghdad at the same time IS recedes from the battlefield. The US military effort is tailored to avoid defeat, not to secure victory. 
The real victory will occur when or if the Iraqi government becomes what we thought it would be in those hopeful days of 2007. And I hope that that vision is achieved, inshallah. I'll make any questions. Great, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, and thank you for, to the Council. UNRWA has a working relationship and a ni nice partnership with the Council, so it's very nice to be here today. While others have been speaking more regionally, I've been asked to focus directly on the current crisis today that's happening in Gaza. Um, and while a number of regimes and movements and crises have come and gone in the Middle East, and in the course of modern Middle East history, one constant, persistent, and complicating factor that has remained consistently unresolved since the end of World War II is the question of Palestine and the fate of the Palestine refugee. At times it is directly at the heart of the crisis. We are witnessing that today in Gaza. At other times it's, it's a lesser of an issue, a lesser of a factor, but it's always there and it will remain an influencing element until a genuine and lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians can be negotiated and implemented, a peace which brings a, about a just solution to the plight of the Palestine refugee. You know, today there are some 5 million registered Palestine refugees in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. It is the mandate of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. That's a really long title, so we use the acronym UNRWA, or in Arabic it would be UNRWA, uh, to provide humanitarian and human development services to them. And though we depend on voluntary government contributions, and I publicly want to thank the U.S. government for its very consistent and generous support, the United States is our number one supporter, our programs are quasi-governmental in nature, providing a range of services including health, education, social support that not only sustain today but build productive lives into the future. We do not have a political mandate. The Quartet handles that for the UN. The situation facing these refugees remains extremely precarious everywhere. And while I will focus today on Gaza, I, I remind that the Palestine refugees in Syria, in the besieged neighborhoods of Yarmouk and elsewhere, remain in horrific danger and despair. I welcome the opportunity to discuss that situation or other concerns about Lebanon and the West Bank, which of course is connected to Gaza, later if, if anyone has that interest. I know many of you have followed the violence in Gaza over the past month very intensely, and unlike in the past, there has been a lot of TV coverage, so I won't take a lot of time going over all the statistics, but they are mind-blowing, um, and they reveal that this time recovery will be exponentially more challenging. The devastation is much greater than people see on TV. Entire neighborhoods have been wiped out, and the overall stakes for the future are higher than ever. First, it's important to appreciate how small and densely populated Gaza is. If you superimpose Gaza over Washington, D.C., it would extend from the mixing bowl, um, where I-395 meets Springfield, just up above where the um, I-95 junction is in just south of Laurel. At its widest, it would superimpose uh, Arlington. But Gaza's really just mostly three miles wide. That's the distance from Georgetown to Capitol Hill. Now take away about one-third of that area, because that's an Israeli-imposed no-man's land security zone. Now cram 1.7 million people into that small remaining area, 70% of whom are refugees served by UNRWA. Wall it in, fence it in, and allow for only the most minimal imports and essentially no exports, and, oh, and, and don't allow the population to travel. They can't leave. Recall that 90% of the water is undrinkable and almost unusable due to salinity. Appreciate that electric power works, if you're lucky, 8 to 12 hours a day, and that was pre-conflict. Now most don't have any at all. And that over 40% of the population is unemployed. 
up to 65% if you're a youth and 80% if you're a younger woman, and endure these conditions for seven years. Gaza is a unique case study of de-development. In 2000, UNRWA provided a pro essential food assistance to just 80,000 people, like any government with a social safety net. At the beginning of this year, the figure was 830,000. By 2020, experts have judged Gaza unsustainable. And some describe Gaza as the world's largest ghetto, or worse, an open-air prison, and that was before this most devastating war. The past weeks have witnessed the largest displacement in the Gaza Strip since the 1967 war, with one-third of the total population, that's just a little under the entire population of Washington, D.C., displaced. At the peak of the fighting, UNRWA housed over 280,000 people in 90 schools. That's about 3,300 people in elementary and middle schools designed for 400 kids. Six of these shelters were bombed, three with fatalities. Today, we continue to shelter 260,000 IDPs in 82 facilities, and the number is rising again due to the renewed hostilities. We have reached our tipping point, and we are now have to contend with new dangers, health and hygiene crises. So far, there have been 2,000, about 2,000 Palestinians, mostly civilian deaths, and 66 Israelis, mostly soldiers, and one Thai guest worker killed in, as the, in the Gaza war. 11 of my own UNRWA colleagues have been killed in Gaza. These are UN humanitarian workers. They're not militants. Early assessment suggests that at least 17,000 homes were destroyed or damaged. Things have had to stop because the ceasefire has stopped, rendering 100,000 people homeless. We expect some 65 to 70,000 Palestinians to stay in our school shelters as they have no homes to return to. UNRWA alone has over 100 facilities damaged, yet through Herculean efforts, we have kept 14 of 21 health clinics open serving over 20,000 patients. Repairing the damage and restarting the lives in Gaza will cost billions of dollars. Many of Gaza's factories and farms have been totally destroyed in what appears to be a case of revenge and retribution. For example, one half of the supply of all poultry, 64,000 fowl, were eliminated. I'm not, show, I'm not so sure what, what threat the, those hens posed, but they're gone. The only power plant uh, was severely damaged and will be inoperative for months. Wastewater treatment facilities were destroyed. And this is kind of where I really scratch my head and ask, really? Because it appears that no one thought that the short-term impact of sticking it to Gaza this way means that raw sewage will now be dumping directly into the Mediterranean Sea, and Mother Nature doesn't care about man-made borders. So it'll eventually be washing ashore on the beaches of Ashkelon, Tel Aviv, and down to El Arish. And that's just the physical damage. The troubling psychosocial impact on both sides will linger for generation. The point here is that while some claim the status quo is sustainable, in reality it is not. This is the third time in six years that there will have been a conflict in and around Gaza. While it goes without saying that the human suffering on both sides is immense and that, and that alone is enough reason to chart a different course, but this pattern of increasingly spiraling violence from both sides and the long-term negative effect it will have on the region at large is even more of a reason to seriously address and peacefully resolve the underlying Palestine question. We need to start again with rethinking, and we can start by rethinking the Gaza paradigm. There is no actor who can resolve this alone if we go back to the pre-existing conditions under occupation and blockade. If there, is not, if there is not something that brings a new paradigm, a new deal, a new hope for the people in terms of opening up, then Gaza and the interests of Israel and others, including the United States, will be consigned to incredible new difficulties in the future. To start, Gaza needs nothing less than a new deal, recovery and reconstruction, and an end to the current policy of collective punishment. Gaza must have its freedom, freedom of access, freedom of movement, freedom to import and export, 
freedom from aid dependency. The lesson of this past month is that, is that millions of civilians deserve better. And as I said, we need to think, to rethink the Gaza paradigm, or it will come back to haunt us all with a vengeance. Now Israel has very serious and legitimate security concerns when it comes to Gaza. The UN has repeatedly condemned the rocket and other terrorist attacks against Israel and recognizes Israel's right to self-defense. But with today's modern, today's proven monitoring regimes and modern technology, there is no legitimate security excuse to continue a crusader era type siege and collective punishment mentality against the civilians of Gaza. Given the disproportional extent of damage to all sectors of life in Gaza, the ban on importing construction materials is socially untenable. People need to be able to rebuild their shattered homes. Easing the blockade would be an important first start and a message of hope uh, for returning to the road to peace. Now, perhaps I'm an internal optimist. You kind of have to be one working where we do. Um, but this latest round may offer a renewed chance maybe to kickstart the frozen peace process from many different angles. Perhaps some will appreciate that the Palestinian Authority is a partner for negotiation and will work with rather than against the current PA cabinet. Perhaps others will finally recognize that the violence they sow and perpetuate only brings greater anguish and suffering to their own people. Perhaps all will pause and think about the world they want their children to live in 20 years from now instead of the political gain they might gain, they might achieve 20 days from now. But I think first and foremost, and when I had originally put this together, we had a ceasefire and we were looking at what reconstruction, how we were going to move forward and, and the great measures that this would do. Unfortunately, now the concentration needs to be back again, first and foremost, thinking about the poor people caught in the middle and at a minimum return a ceasefire, return to a ceasefire and start all over again. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this panel. I'm a big fan of everything the National <coughs> Council does. I find they're one of the greatest advocates for promoting improved U.S.-Arab relations, the, one of the best tools that we have in this town. Um, and the work they do is very valuable in so many ways. I wouldn't even have time to begin to express it, so I'm very glad to be here. I've been asked to speak today on the topic of how Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states are responding to the current set of regional crises. Over the last few weeks, we've seen a clear recognition from the Saudi government of the threats and challenges it faces. Extremists with expansionist territorial ambitions are parked not far off Saudi Arabia's doorsteps. Riyadh has increased troop deployments to fill in the gaps along what is otherwise a very long and difficult uh, uh, border to patrol in the north. At the end of July, Crown Prince Salman visited the northern border region and met with troops there as a public sign of support for the armed forces. Saudi Arabia has explicitly designated ISIS a terrorist organization and criminalized private donations to it. All of this comes at a time when Riyadh and its Gulf neighbors are trying to formulate a response to the ongoing violence in Gaza. At the recent emergency meeting of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC in Jeddah, Saud al-Faisal, Saudi's foreign minister, decried the bloodshed there and announced $500 million in reconstruction funds for Gaza through the Saudi Fund for Development. King Abdullah called Israel's actions a crime against humanity and announced the Saudi government's donation of 200 million rials to the Palestinian Red Crescent. In the UAE, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid has spearheaded a drive to provide humanitarian assistance through the UN Relief and Works Agency, particularly with meals, medical supplies, and clean, clean drinking water. 
14 plane loads departed Dubai's humanitarian city in late July, and the Emirates Red Crescent has approved 13 million dirhams worth of medical supplies. The Arab Gulf states have a key role to play in mobilizing the international community's response to these crises. We see them today, as we have in other events the last three years since the beginning of the, the uprisings, pursuing a greater role in international diplomacy through multilateral forums, including the GCC, the Arab League, the OIC, and seeking throughout all of these processes to achieve greater action at the United Nations uh, and from the West in general. Uh, just last week, uh, with the emergency meeting of the OIC, the statement that they released explicitly uh, called for Chapter 7 uh, of the UN to be applied to Israel. Um, so, this type of diplomatic effort in the last three years has been characterized by close consultations within the GCC, very closed consultations, uh, before taking action in these multilateral forums. And immediately prior to the OIC meeting last week, we saw Emirati Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed meet with Saud al-Faisal in Jeddah for discussions. I'd like to draw some conclusions from, from these things, but let me do that in a minute. Let's try and clear away through some of this history first. We see several examples of this new form of Gulf diplomacy when we look at what Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states did in 2011 in response to the uprising in Syria. Saudi Arabia took the initiative on August 8th in that year, 2011. Uh, King Abdullah issued the statement condemning the violence in Syria and recalling the Saudi ambassador from Damascus, though he had been on leave at the time, but it was still a formal recalling. Qatar used its role in charge of the rotating presidency of the Arab League to press for suspension of Syria's membership, and the League approved it on November 12th of that year. The League also, the Arab League also approved sanctions against the Syrian regime, which was rather unprecedented at the time, uh, and those were passed on November 27th. Saudi Arabia then sought to translate this diplomatic success at the Arab League into concrete action at the United Nations, circulating a draft resolution in February of 2012. A resolution was eventually passed a few months later during the summer, not the exact same one that was intended back in February, uh, and that became UN General Re Assembly Resolution 11266, and that was drafted by Saudi Arabia, strongly backed by Qatar. King Abdullah gave further weight to the resolution by holding an extraordinary summit of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation on August 14th of that year, in 2012, at which the group suspended Syria's membership from the OIC. And the final communique from that summit explicitly stressed the Syrian government's responsibility for the continued violence, for the destruction of property. And moreover, the summit communique also criticized the UN, Arab League envoy, for failing to achieve, achieve tangible results. It's a, a feedback loop, one multilateral organization criticizing another, but all through the, the lens of Saudi pressure and Saudi uh, diplomacy. And the Saudis then used the optic, the visual image of 57 heads of state in the OIC, or the representatives, meeting in Mecca during the last days of Ramadan in that year to critique the international community's approach to a regional crisis and to express their solidarity for a diplomatic solution, one that would be in line with the same diplomatic solution that Saudi Arabia had been promoting for over a year. 
what we see in all of this is Saudi Arabia setting the tone, often with a, a, a royal decree from, from King Abdullah or a public statement from King Abdullah himself. Then Saudi Arabia using the GCC to clarify and expand upon that proclamation, going to the Arab League or the OIC and using that as a springboard to then get further action out of the United Nations and from the West. It's a multi-tiered diplomatic approach to using these multilateral fora to accomplish Saudi's diplomatic goals. That might seem all, all very ordinary for, for those of us engaged in diplomacy on a daily basis, but that's actually rather unusual for Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states historically. It's hard to find other examples of it. And in fact, most experts over the last three years have commented on how the GC states have responded to the regional unrest. They comment in terms of financial dispensations, conservative reactions, uh, paying off publics to maintain stability and, and quiet at home. But what most experts don't notice is, is the aspect of diplomacy, which is often what we talk about first when we talk about other countries in the region. And it's important to notice how assertive and aggressive this new approach to diplomacy is, not just in Riyadh, but also in Abu Dhabi and in Doha. Uh, to understand how different it is, look at the 2006 Lebanon war. At that time, the Saudi government issued a press statement. The press statement drew a fine line between its support for legitimate resistance and what deemed to be rash adventures carried out quote, without consultation or coordination with Arab countries, uh, sort of a bifurcated statement and not much follow-up. Uh, when we look at the 2009 Gaza War, January of that year, Saudi Arabia and Qatar were very involved in what was going on, but I think that the conclusions we draw from that lesson is that Saudi diplomacy was a delayed reaction to rival diplomatic maneuvers in the region i.e. Qatar's holding of an emergency summit inviting Iran. Uh, Saudi then held a rival summit, in essence, in Kuwait, which became the Arab Reconciliation Summit. Two, Riyadh's planning was done in consultation, heavy consultation with it, its international partners, not just within the GCC, but with every stakeholder that needed to be consulted with more broadly. Three, Riyadh back then in 2009, it was more focused on defending its leadership of the Arab world leaving Egypt and the Arab League to deal with the details of the crisis and following up with the international community response. Number four, what we see in 2009 is the end results of that diplomacy didn't require any follow-up from Saudi Arabia, and it didn't require any long-term commitment from Saudi Arabia beyond the, the humanitarian donations that were granted. This is very different from, from the diplomatic approach we see in the last three years. In fact, what you saw in 2009 is much more typical of previous experience in 2006, uh, much more typical of, of Saudi Arabia's predilection for dealing with, with these multilateral fora. Um, certainly before the, the Arab Spring, we never saw such things as, as uh, using the GCC Secretariat to promote the transition of power in Yemen that we saw in 2011, or, or Saudi Arabia rejecting the UN Security Council seat in 2013. Uh, this focus on multilateral and international diplomacy and doing it according to Saudi's agenda, the way Saudi uh, prioritizes its agenda in the world, uh, similarly with Abu Dhabi in, in coordination, and we could say similar things about Doha. 
The Arab Gulf states historically preferred to act in concert with like-minded Arab allies, leaving the regional Arab partners to take the public lead in diplomatic negotiations. And they chose to voice their support for a policy through significant donations to humanitarian development funds, only occasionally allowing their foreign ministers to release comments in the media in support of this or that cause. That desire for quiet consultation, consensus building, and checkbook diplomacy continues today. It hasn't stopped. But it's now being supplemented with a more direct role for the GCC states in shaping and guiding multilateral diplomatic efforts. I would expect that to occur with the current crises as well. Uh, again, um, my views and opinions here are entirely my own. They don't necessarily represent the the State Department or the U.S. government, but I would imagine that uh, moving forward we're going to see a much more aggressive and assertive approach from the Gulf states, uh, done primarily in consultation with each other over how to define and how to respond to these issues, and that's going to be a challenge for the West moving forward. Thank you. I commend all the speakers for <coughs> keeping within their allotted uh, time constraints. And as we often like to say, in terms of these gatherings, uh, we regard them as a cerebral massage. So uh, with the uh, settings, the background, the insights, the perspective, the context that they have uh, set before you, uh, We'll now turn to the question and answer period. What I'll do here is ask, as they've been submitted to me, about four questions so that the adrenaline can begin to pump uh, among the speakers here and they can begin to formulate their succinct uh, replies. Uh, and I will designate perhaps uh, one or two people to be the responders, but others can um, chip in or disagree uh, I ask their own uh, questions uh, as necessary. Several of these have to do with uh, Iraq, uh, and so I'll let or ask if uh, Ambassador Sumidai would be the first uh, to respond to them, uh, but invite also uh, Tom Materas and um, uh, David DeRoche's uh, commentary as well. Uh, and these are not in order of priority as such. Uh, how, if at all, is the United States uh, helping in implementing and maintaining and facilitating uh, the education uh, system in Iraq? How is business development being enriched uh, throughout Iraq? Um, if Iraqis cannot reconcile sufficiently to form an, an inclusive national government, what will Iraq look like? And what will its influence be? Uh, we're talking about unity, confederation, uh, separate countries. Um, yet another, how can ISIS or ISIL uh, be controlled and reconciled, if at all, into Iraq's uh, political order? Or is it uh, a non-issue? Um, Mr. Ambassador, would you like to have a uh, first response on those? 
Um, and there, there is a, a we speak from here. Yeah, microphone. Yes. Uh, thank you. I think it's um, from Andrew Last question is how to get ISIS to be integrated into the Iraqi, into any Iraqi political system. Uh, the simple answer is that it cannot. Um, ISIS, by nature, by definition, by ideology, is an exclusionary form of movement. It's so puritanical that it considers anyone outside a very narrow band defined by its ideology to be a heretic and deserve death. Its uh, activity in the field is so uh, antipathic, antipathic to the local population that it cannot really be assimilated or accepted. It causes revulsion, but it's a helpless kind of revulsion of the victim when, uh, when that happens, like the way they treat women, the way they treat uh, people uh, in their daily behavior. So I don't see them being in any way uh, integrating into society. And if they cannot integrate into society, they cannot integrate into a political system. That's how I see it. Uh, they create a lot of, a lot of <coughs> damage, but until they are removed, it's like uh, saying, how can we integrate a, a vicious uh, Ebola virus into the uh, into the workings of a, a human body? It cannot. So that's that. And we'll, we'll go from that question to the questions at the other end of the spectrum, and which is what what is the United States doing to enhance uh, education? The sector of education, like all other sectors, have suffered greatly from the degradations uh, of, of, of the past uh, several decades. And to get it uh, up and going and to improve it to a level that uh, like it was relative to other countries in half a century ago, which would take, a, would take above all, uh, stability, security, and a concerted effort and the, the dedication of a lot of resources. Now, security is the first thing. We don't have security. You know, we, we, have, we have now so many displaced people in Iraq that you know, it's a joke talking about enhancing the political system when a lot of our kids cannot go to school. Um, our, our universities, most of our university professors have been forced out of their universities into safe areas. So it, it, I, think, I think it's the wrong uh, time for this question. The first thing that we should think about to get this, uh, this sector uh, prepared and improved is to repair the security and the political environment first. And the business environment also is not going to thrive apart from those who thrive in, 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 in war and the, the people who sell arms, the people who sell security systems, the, the private security companies, 
they do, they do a good business out there. But others are confronted with uh, an environment which is hostile, uh, a, a, an environment of corruption. Corruption is the enemy of business. You might get some deals going, but uh, it's very rare that even those deals which are, uh, which are achieved end up uh, in anything good. They don't end up in a profitable result for the companies and they don't end up in a project being actually delivered to the, to the end users. So all these, all these uh, basic issues have to be tackled to create the environment necessary for education, for business, for other things. The last, uh, the other question which I remember is, what kind of Iraq will there be if there is no consensus to produce an inclusive government. The first thing I'd like to say is that just to have the right numbers of ministers from this sect or that sect appointed does not necessarily mean this is an inclusive government. We had we had this kind of government during the Malik. He had some Sunni ministers. Kurdish ministers, but he undermined them by appointing all the director generals uh, from from his his spectrum of uh, politics. He uh, appointed all the uh, all, all the commanders of the army, all the commanders and the police from his uh, from from close associates, and the result is what we see. Uh, and those who needed uh, this, uh, the, the the approval of uh, parliament, this is very senior, uh, it's like you have here, the Senate has to, uh, has to endorse uh, appointments. In Iraq, we have a similar situation. What he did, then he uh, appointed his colleagues, but as acting uh, commander or as an acting director general of this department or that. So effectively, a minister, when he is appointed as a political appointment, finds a ministry which has already been hijacked. He cannot run the ministry as if it is a, a really independent uh, department serving the people. This is what has happened. So what we need is rethinking and reconstituting the government in a way that it actually delivers the services and the functions that it is supposed to be. But if we fail in doing that, and that's going to be a, a hard task for Mr. Rabadi, if he fails, I think we are facing a civil war that will continue further disintegration of, of, of Iraq as, as, a, as a country. Whether Iraq can be put together again in the future is an open question. I happen to believe that there is enough Iraqi nationalism, if you like, that can create a group once the political problems are resolved. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Investor. I'll ask uh, Tom and, uh, and Dave DeRoche uh, to comment briefly, uh, but mention a, a figure or two. Uh, numbers are important. Uh, they often have implications for interest in policies. Uh, you mentioned the security-related uh, foreign firms. 
American and others in Iraq do it quite well. It's helpful to remember that during the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 88, there was a U.S.-Iraq business forum. There were some 50 uh, American corporations uh, that were very activist uh, members of that group. Uh, Patrick uh, Mancino and I met with the uh, Iraq person at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce a couple of years ago and asked, um, what are the members now? And the answer was, we've not been able to get more than 15. And of those 15, two are counseling, so we're down to 13. And we're looking as though we'll be lucky if we have nine. So uh, that's an extraordinary discrepancy. But uh, capital is a coward. It does not want to go into places that are insecure, unstable, and uncertain. On the other figures, uh, or related to that somewhat, Iraq's population when the U.S. led the invasion and occupation was uh, reportedly 24 million. Uh, two million of the, the cream of the cream uh, fled the intellectuals, professional class, middle class, uh, quite early on. And another two million were domestically displaced. Now that's one-sixth of the country's population. In an American equivalency terms, that would be 50 million Americans, refugees or displaced as a result of a foreign-led uh, invasion or occupation. And in terms of uh, figures pertaining to Matt Reynolds, uh, if it's true that the population of Gaza is estimated 1.6 million, and a report in one of the newspapers several days ago with that 200,000 of those have been displaced, um, that would be the equivalent of 48 million Americans having been displaced in the last month. It's hard to get one's mind uh, wrapped around uh, these kinds of uh, realities, and at the same time, one cannot ignore them, especially when the United States is seen by so many in the region as complicit, if not sustaining and maintaining, uh, then supporting, uh, with the U.S. being probably the only government that seems to be vocal in supporting the Israeli narrative from the President and Vice President and most members of Congress including all but eight members of the House of Representatives accepting the Israeli narrative, when one cannot say, other than a country at the Eastern Mediterranean, any European country, any Asian country, any African country, any Latin American country, pressured, lobbied the United States to do that. Um, Tom, Dave. Okay, I, I would agree with my colleague, the ambassador, that. ISIL cannot be integrated into the Iraqi government. Considering their ideology and their behavior, I can't imagine them sharing power or sharing vision with uh, the others. Um, as far as what happens if there's no reconciliation among the, the major uh, factions in Iraq, then I think you have more of the same. You have more bloodletting in the streets and um, um, more lack of uh, coordination between Baghdad and the Kurdish government about revenue sharing and oil exports and uh, and more support in the West and the North for the Islamic State from the Sunni Arab community. So, uh, and that can degenerate even, even further so that you actually do have uh, 
fragmentation of the state. It, it, uh, it's a distinct possibility that that could happen and that Iraq would end up being three entities, I suppose. How to control the um, ISIL? Well, uh, that would involve um, the new prime minister, um, who is from the same party as al-Maliki, but may not be as close to Iran as al-Maliki was because he didn't live there or in Syria. It would involve him not just uh, uh, staffing the cabinet with more representative people, but also staffing his own office, the prime minister's office, and his own personal security forces, and, and uh, all of that. And, uh, then, if you if you actually have uh, more representative government, uh, I think that this would be the time for um, Saudi Arab states to show up, particularly Saudi Arabia, to show up in Baghdad and begin to play a role and to compete for influence with Iran, um, and in that way. Um, help a, new, a more inclusive government uh, fight ISIL, especially because of all the intelligence assets that the Saudis have and some of their neighbors have. And then uh, drain and, and then reach out to the tribes in Western Iraq and seek their support, pull them away from the Islamic State. Um, that, and, and of course, uh, of course, airstrikes. They seem to have been successful in pushing ISIL away from the, the dam in Mosul. And, um, you know, I, 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 I wish I could espouse the John Lennon philosophy of the world, you know, but, but uh, I wouldn't know how to do that with, with groups like ISIL running around. Uh, let, let me just pile on those previous two points. Uh, preparing for this, I read both issues of Dabit, the ISIL magazine. The name is significant. Um, and they proudly have pictures of an adulteress being stoned. They have a whole photo spread on shrines being blown up in Mosul and uh, Tel Afar. Uh, they have pictures of uh, Syrian soldiers being executed. Um, I do not see this, this, this guy making, this organization making peace with people who they refer to as Rafibis or Safawis. Um, we talk a little bit about classical counterinsurgency theory, which envisions an insurgency as a pyramid. Uh, the top of the pyramid are the most active members of the insurgency. These are the hardcore people who are fighting for a caliphate. And then as you go down towards the pyramid, the base widens in numbers of population, but they become less active in their support. And pretty much what you have to do is take the tip of the pyramid off out of the population some way. You either kill them or deport them or put a great distance from them. And then you have to shrink the base by providing an alternative to them. And at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. Right now, for most Sunni who have been living under the Iraqi government for the last few years, they do not see a credible alternative, or at least they did not see a credible alternative. The alternative may start to appear more credible, more enviable, once they've lived under this Islamic regime for a while. But uh, there has to be an alternative. If you shrink that pyramid, kill the base, you'll be fine. And the, the final point I'd like to make this is a technical one, but the efficacy of airstrikes is going to decrease at a very, very rapid rate. At a very, very rapid rate. They will adjust very quickly. And uh, 
you know, the, the constraints that we have to operate under. To fly from a carrier in the Persian Gulf, go all the way out there. You don't have much loiter time, and then go all the way back. And imagine what happens when one of those planes gets shot down. Recall what happened when Ron Settle was shot down over Lebanon in 1983. That pretty much put an end to airstrikes over Lebanon, and then we were firing battleship shells off USS New Jersey at the Lebanese forces in Sukhokhara. Didn't work out so well. Uh, we have um, the duty to acknowledge the presence of the ambassador of the League of Arab <laughs> States uh, with us, uh, former ambassador of Carter, and uh, quite a few diplomats from countries uh, pertaining to uh, the topics, including uh, from Iran as well here today. Um, on back on the Palestinian issue, the ambassador's last remarks uh, added that one could not be unmindful uh, that along with this uh, single greatest obstacle to uh, American Arab, American Islamic uh, good relations, uh, the uh, oldest one, the most pervasive one, uh, that this will uh, itself and be at the root cause for additional numbers of uh, violent ex extremists. And related to that, and I see Matthew, if you take a first cut at it, perhaps uh, Imad, you. Why would we expect Hamas to stop resistance and violence when we declare them terrorists and refuse to recognize them or negotiate with them? And partially stated a different way, um, is it not the essence of strategic wisdom that one negotiates with uh, one's adversaries and en enemies, not one's uh, friends, and were uh, America to have a comparable position, we would still be in Vietnam. The government of South Vietnam never once recognized the right uh, of the Viet Cong in North Vietnam uh, to exist. Uh, excuse me, uh, the, we never forced the Viet Cong or North Vietnam to recognize the right of the Republic of Vietnam to exist. Had we insisted on that, there'd be more than 50,000 names on the malls, walls uh, that the Americans killed there, and untold uh, millions more of Vietnamese. Had the French government demanded that the Algerian rebels uh, demand France's right to retain its sovereignty over Algeria. There would be more than the 8.5 8 Algerians who was an orphan at independence. So these are implications. As I said, we cannot blame others for these policies. And uh, it's one thing to shoot oneself in the foot, uh, but it begs the question, why reload faster than anybody else? Uh, Matt? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm actually going to have, actually, Ahmad can take on most of the political answers because as UNRWA, we really don't get involved yes, in the right. political discussions. I would say, though, that there is, a, there, there is an attempt by the Palestinians through a unity cabinet, which all the parties have supported, um, that presents itself as a, as a Palestine um, cabinet that represents all of the parties. Um, so there is a partner that's available. Um, but I think um, I'll defer to my colleague to to get into more of the political details. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it seems to me that Hamas is just simply, <coughs> me, uh, just simply being used as a, uh, as a basically a prop to say no uh, to uh, to resolve the Palestinian issue. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I know, and as far as I think all of you know, uh, Hamas is no longer uh, no longer dreams of uh, you know getting Palestine from the sea to the river. Uh, uh, historical Palestine. I think the, uh, the this this issue is uh, going to be resolved way 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 down the line when uh, both peoples decide that um, this land is a one-state solution. Uh, I think the uh, Israel is um, using Hamas just simply to say, no, I don't want to give the Palestinians their rights. As far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, Hamas has entered into a, um, a, um, uh, a, an agreement uh, with the uh, Palestinian Authority on uh, uh, basically sharing power. They have they also agreed that uh, a new government would be a technocratic government, so there won't be specifically a specific Hamas presence into it. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know the. the Remember, you know, before 1993, uh, uh, the PLO was asked to recognize Israel, and once the, the PLO recognizes Israel, there goes peace. So uh, we're, we're going to have peace immediately. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, to me, it's a it's a it's a, it's a play on semantics. Uh, it's like you know, we're trying to find a way of not reaching a solution. Uh, whether it's Hamas, whether it is Islamic Jihad. I mean, if Hamas was to were, were, were to turn tomorrow and say, well. We announced that we accept Israel and its uh, its borders, 67 nevertheless. Um, you know, Israel would say, "Well, still uh, the jihad, the Islamic jihad organization, has not accepted us yet." So, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think that the issue is with Hamas. I think the issue the issue is on the other side of the border. There was earlier a comment about uh, an aspect of the uh, ISIS. Uh, uh, adherents and supporters and fighters uh, being uh, Wahhabis and uh, one can infer what one wants from such an implication uh, but um, might it be fair that many would say well you're talking about Saudi Arabia um, and if so then one needs to uh, address that uh, and the context being that there are others from the same Islamic school of law, which is the Hanbali school of law. Uh, Qatar subscribes to the same school of law, and so do four out of the seven uh, United Arab Emirates. So, uh, Mr. Ambassador, I think you made that comment. Would you like to elaborate on that? And perhaps uh, Tom or Dave or anybody else come in? Without Josh, feel free to. Yes. Uh, I uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to turn this discussion into a theological discussion. But I just want to illustrate the mindset that underpins the uh, mentality of the jihadists in ISIS, in ISIS. Um, yes, Hungary is the puritanical branch. Uh, we have four major uh, jurisprudence 
schools. The, the, the most flexible and permissive is the Hanafi. The least uh, flexible is the Hanbali. Hanbalis are the puritanical uh, side of Islam. But within Hanbali, there were people who are extremely Hanbali, if you like. And, and, and the, and the uh, Wahhabis who uh, were um, born as a school of thought in the very harsh environment of Najd in the center of the Arabian Peninsula where life was really hard and social norms extremely strict. Uh, and their interpretations of some of the early edicts and the texts were so strict that they simply cannot be taken and applied in a city like Cairo, which had, which had an opera house in the 19th century, or Baghdad, which has always had places where people drink wine uh, or, or, or local liquor and, and have music. They are entirely different social environments. Yet, these people who are raised in schools and taught this, this brand of Islam, and I'm not now referring to specific states, but these schools indoctrinate children to such an extent that they grow up believing that that is Islam, anything else is heresy. They become, and, and if they become um, uh, depressed or, uh, or alienated or, uh, or upset about something, they go more to the extreme. So out of a spectrum of a thousand children, you get about five maybe who are willing to go right to the extreme. Extremism is a phenomenon. You've got the bell shape of, of uh, phenomenon in any social situation, and the extreme will, will, will always be there. But when the, the, the base element, where the center of the curve is already extreme to, relative to others, you can imagine what those, and that is ISIS. We are dealing with a phenomenon with, which is the extreme among the extremists. What I'm saying is that the, the ideology which is taught at schools and in mosques and madrasas across the Islamic world funded, funded from Gulf states, not necessarily by states, but very often by private uh, interests and private individuals, create that kind of result. And this result is dangerous, and it has to be dealt with. I, I implemented a project in Pakistan in the 80s. Pakistan was practically always very far. Well, most of them are, are uh, are, are, are uh, to my knowledge, uh, closer to the Sufi Islam, and certainly Hanafi. In the project, we, we designed a calligraphy piece, two calligraphy pieces. One says, Ya Allah, means, uh, uh, approaching God, or, or uh, invoking God. And the other side says, Ya Muhammad. There was a demonstration against this 
by a local madrasa, which was funded from sources in, in the Arabian Peninsula, telling them that you should not invoke Muhammad, they should only invoke Allah, and therefore this is heresy. And, and this, was, this was alien to Pakistan, but yet it was planted there. Now it is planted in Afghanistan, in Chechnya, in Indonesia, everywhere. And that is the root of the ideology which has produced ISIS. Unless we recognize it, and if it's not politically expedient to, to, to face this, <coughs> that's a different matter. But that is a reality that we, what has to be confronted and dealt with. Thank you. Um, I'd like to come if Imams and Joshua's input on this and related to that is a question. How can the Gulf governments best prevent private or religious financial flows uh, to uh, ISIS? Um, Tom or Joshua or Imams? Um, I I don't disagree with anything that was said. I just want to to balance that by by noting that you have a number of institutions in Saudi Arabia uh, involved in religious outreach and religious education that are a core part of Saudi society. Uh, um, institutions that have been around for quite a long time, employing uh, many individuals and families within Saudi Arabia that owe their reputations or livelihoods to to those institutions. More than that, you have a government in Riyadh that has engaged in several initiatives and several programs to counter radical Islamist thought and to counter terrorist ideologies. So we, we do have to understand there's more of a nuance in a lot of these issues. I don't want to, to, to be a, a defender of any one particular side here, but I do want to at least uh, present a, a both, both aspects of this. And more than that, you have debates within Salafi thought that exist both inside uh, the kingdom and in other countries in the region. You have debates within Salafi circles in North Africa and in Egypt among Salafists there. Um, at the same time, there's not always oversight. And this holds true for a number of governments in the region. There's not always um, complete oversight of all the programs and initiatives going on abroad. Uh, and so that goes back to what I think Imad was saying. Um, but I think the most, the most interesting development we've seen this year in all of these aspects are the foundation of a new association of Islamic uh, authorities uh, sponsored by the, the, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi uh, in contrast to the Islamic Union, the Union of Islamic uh, and Muslim Scholars based in Doha. Um, and you see a lot of outreach to Al-Azhar in Cairo. Just today, Al-Azhar announced that they would give an honorary uh, doctorate to King Abdullah for all of his efforts on behalf of the Muslim uh, world. Uh, and you see this partnership with Al-Azhar in order to try and find a more moderate approach in the region and to support it and to give it the resources it needs to try and challenge some of the more radical ideologies. And I think we'll see a lot more moving forward of, of that support for Al-Azhar, trying to, to boost its, its uh, weight and its influence in the region. Thank you. Um, and apropos that, when Matthew Reynolds was the Assistant Secretary of State for Congressional Affairs under uh, Condoleezza Rice, uh, both at 
her tenure and Colin Powell's uh, before, uh, there were repeated statements that no country was cooperating more with the United States shoulder to shoulder to counter uh, these phenomenal forces and factors and to stem the, uh, staunch the, the financial uh, flows. And in the last 10 days, it appeared only on page 10 of the New York Times, Saudi Arabia contributed 500 million to the United Nations Fund to focus exclusively on uh, counterterrorism there. Uh, but Imaan, asking you to be the first one to add to this. Um, well, can I make a remark about this this issue? All right. Uh, you know, the Saudi society is more conservative than, than the Saudi royal family. So the king is reforming at a pace that is measured and designed not to elicit uh, a conservative backlash. But he has removed radical clerics and uh, reformed the educational system. And uh, they have tighter financial regulations than other neighbors. So their efforts to control individual financing of uh, radical organizations is, is a little tighter. And as a matter of fact, when the UN Security Council just named some of the financiers of ISIL and banned them, uh, they, were, they were not from Saudi Arabia. Um, so uh, I, I think they're, and they've had a wake up call in the mid-2000s when Al-Qaeda undertook uh, actions inside the kingdom and uh, so their Ministry of Interior is uh, energetically trying to uh, identify and, and, and deal with those people and they probably have the networks in the tribes and to identify people outside of the country and help Iraq. Thank you, thank you Tom. I might will come to you in a minute and Ambassador also to make another big uh, point. Um, the question is, did the United States miss the boat by not giving more military support to Syria's rebels in past years? Uh, apropos this, um, the same kind of question was posed when the United States uh, had a dilemma on the nature, the degree, and the extent to which it would support the rebels in Syria seeking to overthrow the government of Muammar Gaddafi. And people called for um, air support or an air card. Uh, but uh, then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Martin Dempsey, said, mm -mm. Uh, if you go into another country to do that, you have to take out its air defense system. The implications of that are enormous in terms of uh, warlike um, activities. And the same would apply in Syria, but arguably more so, because Syria's air defense system is overwhelmingly Russian from the Soviet era. And one can uh, examine what the implications of that, uh, of that with the United States to take out a Russian-supported air defense system in Syria. Would uh, Moscow hibernate? or accommodate that, uh, I think the answer is fraught with uh, problems there. Uh, but Imad, you want to address that and related to one about the future of American academic institutions in Iraq. 
Um, American University Beirut, of course, is uh, more than a century old, and it's been a beacon, a flagship for American uh, ideals and values and principles, beliefs, uh, traditions, practices, and the like. And it's trained many an Arab uh, leader, and many a non-Arab leader, Zalmi Khalizad. <laughs> was one of the scholarship uh, recipients uh, to the American University of Beirut as an Afghan, okay? Uh, Iman, I'm a this, and then Mr. Mester. Okay, well, uh, I, I, I think, yeah, we're already late in Syria. Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, there is definitely the, uh, uh, the problem of taking out the uh, air defense system. Obviously, there is, but there was a problem of taking out the Iraqi air defense system in 2003. Yes, I know that Russia was not opposed at the time and did not want to pull up, uh, put up uh, some resistance to this. But um, the issue is not necessarily to degrade the, uh, the Syrian Air Force or anything like that. I mean, you know, uh, when the uh, Afghani war, uh, I know we ended up with, uh, with uh, Al-Qaeda, basically. But the idea is, uh, is, um, is worth a, a, at least exploring. I mean, we have an environment that is really, truly... Uh, go into uh, hell in a basket, so to speak. Uh, Jordan, I'm sure that there are trainings uh, uh, taking place in Jordan. I think that there are people, a lot of former Syrian army officers who are in the refugee camps around uh, Syria who are basically unemployed. They would be uh, uh, a great asset uh, to try to support uh, some sort of a building of a third force. I mean, uh, um, Kenneth Pollock, uh, just a couple of months ago, I was listening to him, I think it was his pure function, uh, where he said, well, a third force is possible to be built, although he, before that he said, no, leave Syria alone, we don't want to interfere there, but uh, he turned out to uh, change his mind on it. Uh, you know, there was a third force that was established in, uh, after 2007 in, uh, in Iraq called the Sahawat, the Sahawa. Uh, uh, today, uh, Nouril Maliki, or actually uh, last month, Nouril Maliki was using them for his own political support. But those people were essential for uh, for basically ending the Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, uh, threat. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, if we don't do anything, nothing is going to change. Maybe if we do something, something will. As far as uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, the Libya, the Libya issue uh, was there. Yes, that's uh, fine. But you know, uh, America at the time chose to lead from behind. But uh, then, uh, without the prodding of uh, the uh, Gulf states, uh, uh, probably the United States was encouraged by the Gulf uh, Arabs to take some sort of a, uh, of, a of a stand, like it did. Uh, because, you know, after all, Qatar and, uh, and uh, the UAE sent uh, squadrons of airplanes to help with the, uh, with the NATO effort. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe Libya was a clearer case than the Syria issue uh, because Libya was, was Muammar Gaddafi. Everybody hated him, so uh, everybody would, would go against him. But uh, uh, I think something should be done in Syria. Um, Yes, uh, maybe not our F-16s, but maybe uh, we can uh, help uh, train uh, some sort of a moderate force that uh, can do that. Last comment from the ambassador, and then I'll make a closing uh, uh, remark. Uh, just a couple of comments, briefly about uh, Syria. In 2010, uh, 2011, 
I had some uh, statements here in Washington about the Syrian regime and uh, the way that uh, it's oppressing its people and creating problems in the region. That seemed to have upset my government in Baghdad. So I was admonished uh, gently by the foreign minister uh, over lunch. And I, then I told them, look, uh, last year, in 2010, your instructions were to try and get American support to help Iraq's case against Syria because they were involved, according to the Iraqi government, in the terrorist bombing of our foreign ministry. At that time, they bombed two, two ministries in Iraq, and in the foreign ministry alone, we lost about 25 young uh, diplomats. And the instructions of the government then was Syria were, was behind it. Now, how come in one year, now we cannot criticize Syria? Obviously, for, for sectarian uh, reasons. So I, I think it was, it, and, and then later in the civil war in Syria, uh, there was definitely a, a intervention, foreign military intervention in the form of Hezbollah and form of Iranian active support uh, with the uh, aiding and abetting of the Iraqi government and, and that helped uh, the Syrian regime to st stick together. So there was no, nothing uh, really uh, uh, equivalent to that on the other side. So that's what I have to say on Syria. Just a final very, very brief comment on, on this business of uh, the education of terrorists and, and, and primary education. Look, it's, it, I, I know now if you go in, in any mosque in Saudi Arabia and try to collect donations for jihadis, you would be slapped very hard. And the Saudi government is conscious uh, about looking uh, right and looking good in the international context, not to allow financing and funding to ISIS. It's good to be seen to be promoting a seaweed, uh, a weed killer. My point is to stop people sowing the seed for weeds. That is the point. That's what we should be concentrating, focusing attention. In the, by the time you are dealing with ISIS, it's too late. The phenomenon is out of control. You should stop educating children in a way that allows them even to become anything close to the monsters that we see in ISIS. That is the point. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, <coughs> uh, lastly here, we um, like to remind everybody that even though uh, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations is not a university, uh, there's not a day that passes without uh, being involved with educational issues and uh, with the propagation and elucidation of ideas and information and insight and ideals and interests and involvement. All six of those words begin with an I, so I guess the I's have it there. But um, at the same time, we're not a governmental organization. We're probably a non-governmental organization. And yet not a day passes without uh, being concerned with and trying our best uh, to make a contribution to what would otherwise pass for a national conversation or dialogue um, about America's legitimate needs, America's legitimate interests, America's legitimate 
concerns, America's legitimate aspirations, America's legitimate uh, foreign policy objectives, uh, nationally, but also internationally. Uh, in the process, we are humble enough to acknowledge we have no monopoly on the method, we have no trademark on the technique, we have no copyright on the concept, and we have no patent on the process. Uh, we thank all of you for being here and contributing through these uh, great questions. There are several that did not get to be answered, but I think perhaps if the speakers would remain behind for a few minutes, those who ask them or want to know the answers uh, might come forward. And one is, how will Iraqs and serious minorities survive this conflict? Turkmen's, Christians, Yazidis, etc. Will these groups simply disappear from Iraq, if not also Syria? Uh, and another related one that's problematic uh, was reports that many ISIS soldiers or former Ba'athist military. How have these individuals managed to shift their ideological terrain so drastically? Please join me in thanking all of our specialists.